Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Well, the hottest topic, maybe in the world, but certainly in the United States these days, is a little fella called ChatGPT, which, as you probably know by now, is the designation for a remarkable new piece of technology that has people talking about the potential for artificial intelligence to change the world. Some people think change it very much for the better. Some people are quite worried that this new capability uh, is going to be very dangerous indeed. Uh, in a nutshell, as best I understand it, this chat GPT and is, is an artificial intelligence chat bot that can basically answer your questions uh, just like a human being would, except it's a machine. And that all sounds very innocent until perhaps maybe some people worry the machine takes on a mind and a life of its own. But the people who are in charge of chat GPT Microsoft are pledging and say they're working very hard to make sure that this technology fulfills its useful and hopeful and worthwhile potential and helps enhance productivity and quality of life and the like. And to that end, they have designated an executive to be in charge of what is called responsible AI. And that executive's name is Natasha Crampton, who we are delighted to have as our guest on the podcast today. Uh, just give you a brief summary of her bio. Natasha is a lawyer actually trained in New Zealand and spent, which if I'm not wrong, is her native country and has spent a lot of her career in Australia and New Zealand before coming to Microsoft in the U.S where she has devoted a lot of her time to this remarkable technological development and to making sure, as her job title implies, it is deployed with responsibility. So what we asked Natasha to do was come on and tell us a little bit, first of all, about what this really is and how it works. And secondly, how indeed it can be um, manage responsibly and what the challenges and opportunities are that attach to that. So without any further ado, I want to jump into the podcast by welcoming Natasha Crampton. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So why don't we just set the terms very simply by having you give us a brief explanation of what ChatGPT is, how it works, and what Microsoft hopes to do with it. So I think we're at an inflection point for AI broadly and chat GPT being chat uh, examples of the types of applications that we're starting to see. And I think the thing that's so remarkable about this inflection point is that it's a whole new way of engaging with computing. 
So if you remember how the world changed when we had touch screens on our phones, that was a significant moment. The world changed when we had graphical interfaces on our PCs for the first time. This is another inflection point, and it's one that's made possible because you can simply engage with this very powerful technology in a completely natural way. You don't need to be a coder. You can just speak natural, plain English or other lang the other languages that you speak, and you can get responses from these models. And, and when they're applied in particular scenarios, the effects of them can be quite transformative. So I'll just use Bing Chat as, as one example. This is our new uh, AI-powered experience for search. And what it allows you to do is, as the user, to type in a question that you may have and get returned a response that is on point, summarized, very coherent, and in the case of Microsoft's offering, actually links back to the sources as well. So you're getting, you find yourself in your day-to-day -day life as you use these products as engaged in a very productive process of asking questions, getting answers, inquiring more, maybe clicking on the links. These models also allow these very creative endeavors as well. So some of our listeners today might have seen uh, some viral poems or images floating around that are made possible by these uh, very powerful new models. So Natasha, how is this different from just, you know, the good old searches we used to do? I, I understand that those weren't, you couldn't just sort of say into the computer, please write, and I actually did this, I want everyone to know, please write my wife a valentine. Uh, and make it rhyme and make it refer to her personally. And you get back this beautiful piece of verse. In my case, I actually had ChatGPT do it in German. And but but what is going on in, so to speak, inside that? What is the what is the artificial intelligence application doing? As I understand it, it's essentially like scouring the entire Internet for you. And well, take it from there. Sure. So I think the best way to think about these uh, new models like ChatGPT, like uh, GPT-4 that you might have come across in your travels is that they're essentially very powerful vessels for knowledge. So you're, you're right. What The way in which they're built is that they take internet scale data sets and all of the language and expressions um, that we have, have made and recorded there, and they create that the knowledge that is extracted from them. And so what this means in practice is that as a user, you can now, as you say, ask the, the model to write a poem, write a song, create an image, describe an image in words, and you'll get an image generated. So what they do is they allow those prompts that users are guiding them with to call on the model. The model calls on all of its learned representations and associations of all that data on the internet, and it generates something net new that is that is customized for you. And so it's if when you engage with these tools, and I definitely encourage your listeners to do that, that's when you really see the promise and the peril. And, and you can see, for example, um, that you know you get a poem back in German, you might have got five stanzas in that poem and decided that no actually really you only just wanted three and then you can instruct the model to just return a three paragraph poem as well so really I think getting hands-on with the model helps you see how essentially a, a model that has synthesized um, the expression of, of, of language the expression of us on the internet 
into a powerful representation of that that we can then query and get much more summarized, responsive, direct and creative answers than what we've got from search engines in the past. So why is the responsibility of this even an issue? You make it sound all upside, all wonderful. Why do you even have to think about responsibility? So I think like past technological uh, revolutions and moments like what we're in now, I think it's important to think about AI systems as both tools that really deliver very beneficial use cases in our personal lives, helping us with societal challenges as well. But we do need to be clear-eyed about the fact that like every other technology that's come before it, these sorts of technologies can be used as weapons as well. So my job at Microsoft, I come to work every day to make sure that we are laying the groundwork to secure those beneficial uses and make sure that uh, we minimize the surface area for any harmful uses that we want to avoid. And at times, I think something like responsible AI can can come across as a bit of a buzzword. It's unclear precisely what it means, but but at Microsoft, it's very clear what it means. It is a, a series of steps that you take to make sure that you're actually building AI systems in a way that warrants trust by our users and that lives up to our principles. So in a very practical sense, it means doing things like undertaking an impact assessment when you're designing the tech at the very beginning, making sure that you're doing fairness testing before you release it making sure that there's documentation that non-technical people can understand so that it's clear what are the capabilities and limitations of these sorts of uh, of these sorts of systems. And this is an exercise that we've been engaged in for a long time now. I've been in this role for three and a half years, but the company's been hard at work for these issues for about the last six years. So it's really that type of foundation that is necessary to really secure those benefits uh, for the world, which I believed to be fundamentally important, um, but also to guard against the misuse or the harmful use of this technology. So let's get into some concrete examples of what people are concerned about. I'm sure you've heard them all or all the ones that are as of today. <laughs> we were talking before we started recording that you and I first met in February when we had a different discussion of this issue and so much has happened since. One of the most uh, dramatic things that happened since, of course, was a New York Times reporter started engaging with this application and pretty soon found that it, it was telling him that he should maybe cheat on his wife or the equivalent of that. Perhaps you can adjust the, that particular case in a moment, but I also want to get your reaction to what I take as one of the characteristic concerns that people have. We had it articulated as it happens in an op-ed in the Washington Post today by the uh, venture capitalist and the head of the Ford Foundation who were concerned, for example, that there will be algorithms and uh, uh, sort of fed into this technology that will in effect sort of replicate the kind of ambient racial discrimination, for example, that sort of is out there in society and is sort of fed into this immense knowledge base that the the application draws from and that that will in effect perpetuate those biases or stereotypes. I take it you've you've heard that kind of critique before and I, I'd sort of like to hear how you answer that. Sure. So I think thinking about these systems and, and building these systems, 
requires very uh, deep process of interrogating what it is that they're designed to do and how we secure those benefits and how we mitigate those harms. So if we take, for example, uh, the concerns about bias in these types of systems, Ensuring that AI systems perform well for all people of all experiences and that they don't replicate the stereotypes of the past has been a long-standing focus of uh, responsible AI programs like the one that I lead at Microsoft and in fact across the industry as well. I think some of our first profile uh, contact with these sorts of concerns is really in the context of facial recognition systems, where we found that uh, in an unacceptable way, our technology, as well as many other facial recognition providers and their technology, were not performing equally well across different demographic groups. And Upon learning that and interrogating why it was that that was happening, we realized that the data sets were not representative of all of the people uh, who were going to be impacted by the use of these systems. So through that type of example, we have studied and learned a lot about how to identify and measure and mitigate for bias. And we take exactly that type of pattern that we learned many years ago now, and we apply it in the context of these newer systems. And that, I think, is overall the approach that we we take with a new system like Bing and, and the chatbot that we have there. It's really important that when we've got a new system and a new model, that we understand what its outer limits are. All of these models have capabilities and the, and their limitations, and we need to be clear-eyed about what those limitations are going into building these systems. We also so we do things like red teaming to make sure that um, we understand that, and um, we also do systematic measurement. So, for example, for concerns about stereotyping or unfair performance across different groups, we will dig into exactly those types of questions when we're building a new system like the new Bing. And then, on top of that, when we actually it comes time to release the system. We know that we need to take an incremental approach here because it is it is not the case that uh, despite all of the work that we do in the labs prior to release, which is very expensive and something that I was personally involved in for new products like the new Bing, there's always going to be uses of the system that we cannot anticipate in the labs. And this is why it's really important to have those uh, controlled release processes like the one that we had for the new Bing. So I want to stop you there because everything, if I understood it correctly, that you just described is kind of like internal controls, things that you are doing within the company to make sure you get it right, which I'm sure everyone would say is well and good. But I think the the sort of, I, I don't the word is demand or request or appeal from people like the folks who wrote that op-ed in our paper is that there'd be some kind of external check, but whether it come from government, elsewhere in the private sector, nonprofit organizations, you know, the people who sort of loosely travel under the term stakeholder, what's your sense of how that kind of, and I think the term guardrail gets thrown around a lot how that those kinds of constituencies can get brought in on the process of creating guardrails. One point to be mindful of here is that 
we shouldn't forget that all of the existing body of law that we've had and built up over the years still continues to apply to these new systems. So if we take fairness considerations, they very clearly map to anti-discrimination protections that we all enjoy under the law. And we should absolutely make sure that in this new uh, frontier with these new applications that we have, that we preserve all of those protections enshrined in the constitution and and specifically in anti-discrimination law in this new wave. So there is that foundation there already. Now, I think there's, in addition to that, I think there's important transparency and accountability uh, practices that are emerging and growing stronger all the time. And I think we should continue to put our weight behind those. So one example is making sure that organizations such as Microsoft make available documentation about the types of testing that we have done, which is essentially a sunlight type of uh, mitigation for stakeholders, right? We need to shine a light on what we have done and what the performance is so that we are able to inform our stakeholders about where the gaps are. Because it is the case that we do make conscious choices. For example, in some cases, we do not think it's appropriate for our systems to be used on children. We say that up front so that people know that that is the case. There's a really interesting, I think, um, important uh, movement as well to try and define what it is, um, what appropriate third-party independent testing could like look like for these systems. And in fact, it was academic researchers who really galvanized the progress on facial recognition and fairness. And I think we should look to that model to see what more we can borrow from it to apply to these ongoing needs today and build out those sorts of transparency and accountability measures. Now, to sort of shift the conversation to maybe a little more uh, lofty or philosophical plane, as I'm sure you're more than aware, uh, the words that are being thrown around to describe this technology, you know, uh, Tom Friedman says it's a Promethean moment. People have compared it, to, I think Larry Summers compared it to the invention of fire. Others have said that this is, you know, the most important intellectual paradigm shift since the, since the Enlightenment. There's been no lack of grandiosity applied to this development. I, I might add that one of the more interesting takes I read, and I'd like to get your reaction to it as well, was from a writer called Peter Jewell, who actually said this whole thing is a big nothing burger. It's all overrated. It's going to be like the flying taxis that we were promised five years ago and still haven't been developed and that we should all be a little skeptical toward it. I, I'd like to get your sense of kind of why it is that one would think this is so transformational. And maybe also your reaction to the people who are sitting back and saying, well, come on, show me. I do believe that AI is going to be very informational in both our personal lives and our professional lives. And it's going to help us with some of society's largest challenges. Um, and here I mean climate change, making sure that there's broad access to uh, excellent health care. So I do actually think it's important to be having at this moment where we are in this inflection point to be having these broad discussions about what this technology means and the tense should be as big as it can be to make sure that we are accounting for 
various different perspectives. Now, as we have those broad discussions and people uh, bring their various opinions to the table, I don't think we should lose sight of our own role here and the determination that we can ourselves apply to writing the future that we want. Fundamentally, when you build an AI system, it doesn't just happen. It's the product of many different decisions that uh, people who build the AI systems like Microsoft take, as well as the people who choose to use those systems. And so I think the more that we can do to recognize our own agency in, in this exercise, to recognize there are choices that we can make and we can make choices that steer these systems in the direction that we want to make them. Now, companies such as Microsoft and others should be very clear-eyed about their own responsibility here and act on it. And we will also need governments and policymakers to step up and play their role of, of helping to find that societal consensus about where the red lines should be drawn. So I do think now is the time to have these broad ranging conversations, make sure we are considering various different perspectives and also not lose sight of the, of the role that we have and certainly in, in my case, Microsoft's very significant responsibility to make sure that these beneficial use cases are realized in a responsible way that people can trust. So I want to drill down a little bit on one of the more grandiose, uh, lofty takes, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It was a long essay in the Wall Street Journal going back a few weeks under the bylines of no less a figure than Henry Kissinger, Eric Schmidt and a computer scientist, Daniel Huttenlacher. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And they were expressing the view, and I'll, some, I'll just quote it, generative artificial intelligence presents a philosophical and practical challenge on a scale not experienced since the start of the Enlightenment. And though their argument is complex and maybe a little over my head, the gist of it, as I understood it, was this technology is going to give us authoritative statements based on information we ourselves don't, don't understand or from sources into which we have no visibility. Their, their, their statement is, it creates a gap between human knowledge and human understanding. And I think that is, to the best way I can summarize it, that's the nub of the concern about this whole, uh, the whole phenomenon is that it's going to be telling us things in an authoritative voice, many of which are going to be useful, some of which more useful than others, some of which may be even troubling. But we have no ability as ordinary people to kind of get behind the, the guts of what went into producing that authoritative statement, and that that is going to kind of leave us all a little bit intellectually at sea. At least that's what I thought they were getting at. And I wonder if you think I've summarized the concern correctly. And if so, what's the best thought you have to address it? Because I believe in a future where we combine, you know, the very best of humans with the very best of these powerful technologies. Fundamentally, I, I come back to the importance of the system design and the way that we have humans and technology working together. So 
to take some of that premise that there's always going to be a gap between human knowledge and human understanding, I think we've already seen examples of how you can design uh, systems and harness the power of this technology that don't create such a gap. And I would say that Microsoft's chat is one very clear example of that. So unlike ChatGPT, which is a, a, a product built by our partner, OpenAI, Bing Chat allows for a response to a user's question to actually be grounded in search results. A simple way of putting it is that we've brought back the footnote because when we serve a response to a, a user, there are footnotes and links to go and learn more from the sources that are relevant to the answer that was produced. And I can say in my own personal use of uh, Bing over a, quite a number of months now, this has been very helpful to my own understanding and my own line of inquiry. What I've found is that as I will ask a question and get a response, often I will go off and click on a link, have a look at that source material, and then decide which next question I am going to, to ask. Sometimes this actually results in the situation where I find myself with an untenable number of windows open in, in my uh, browser. But it is the case that I've found it to actually help my inquiry further. Now, as another example of this, many big enterprises in the US and around the world are going to want to harness this technology in the context of their own enterprise data. You know, all companies and other organizations have built up a rich repository of data over the years. And so they will want to be able to use this technology to quickly write, you know, a draft document in the style of the Bank of America, to quickly write a, a draft document in the style of Macy's. So making sure that the technology is harnessed in a way that is grounded in, in the data that is all around us and actually really pulling on the power of that data. That is a way in which I think we already see systems going today. And that is the best way, in my opinion, to really harness the power of the technology. This way you end up with technology that's much more of your co-pilot as a helpful assistant, getting that first draft ready, um, helping you with that uh, presentation, and you just need to finesse it, as opposed to the AI operating in some type of autopilot fashion where we don't really know what's going on in, in, in the back end and we haven't really expressly invoked it. So I think there are system designs already out there that are getting at exactly this issue. And I think making sure that we keep focusing in this direction, harnessing the best of humans and the best of the technology together, but the technology serving as the co-pilot, this is the way forward to make sure that we're getting the benefits of this technology without some of the downsides that were being discussed in some of those in those opinion pieces. So now I have to tell you where my own, I don't want to say distrust, but my own unease <laughs> came to the surface the other day. And it involved you, Natasha, because without your knowing it, I asked, it wasn't the Bing, uh, it, wasn't, it's, uh, it wasn't Bing, but it was ChatGPT, which I understand is a somewhat more primitive uh, technology at this point. I asked it to write a brief biography of Natasha Crampton uh, so that I could use it for this podcast. And uh, it did an okay job, but it 
and it identified you as a faculty member of the University of California, Berkeley and MIT, as well as responsible AI <laughs> chief at Microsoft. And I thought to myself, hey, that's great. Natasha Crampton is on these faculties. I took it at face value. But being a skeptical journalist, I then said, well, you know what? I better do a Google search. <laughs> Sorry to mention right. a, compu a competitor. Better do a Google search and make sure that she, this is really on the level. And as your laughter implies, it, it wasn't. As I understand it, you are not and not, never have been on the faculty of those institutions. Am I right? That is, that is correct. So now we're in the realm of that thing these bots do called the hallucination. Let me tell you why I find it unsettling or interesting, actually, almost profound, is that then I had to ask myself, well, how do I know Google knows what it's talking about? You see what I mean about Natasha Grammy? Because, because you, you very well could be on the faculty of MIT. Goodness knows, based <laughs> right. on everything you've been talking about today, that's something you could be doing. So reflect with me for a moment about that, it seems to me, is, is the, the sort of almost kind of unstable, unsettling feeling that can kick in when you are being provided with information about which ultimately you may not feel you have an ability to sort of come to rest about the veracity of it, when it seems plausible on its face. I, I think this is a very, very valid point about being aware of, of context and in a, in a search context, we've all been using search for very, very many years. And in fact, it hasn't really changed all that much over that time, but what has improved over time have been the authoritative nature of search results. And so our user expectation when we're searching for information is in fact that we get factual information that is responsive to our search. Now, we also all know that not everything you read on the internet is correct as a matter of fact. And so this is why I think it's very important that we actually think deeply about the context in which we are using this technology and we make sure that we have the right type of guardrails in place for that context. So ChatGPT on one hand is an open-ended uh, chat interface. Bing Chat, on the other hand, is about supercharging your search. And this is why we have taken the additional step of grounding the responses that you get in that application in search results. And, and therefore, attaching all of the user expectations that we have about search over time. And again, as you sort of rightly point out, we have come to expect high authority search results to appear at the top of our search list. But we also know that those are not, that not everything we read is actually correct. So both of those things are true at the same time. So if we step back from all of this, so much of harnessing the power of this technology is making sure that we are applying it in the right context and we're setting the right expectations with users. That is the way to uh, harness its benefits without getting ourselves into a destabilizing situation where it's unclear whether things can be relied upon. I definitely see a path in this direction, but it does rely on being sure about context and 
proper mitigations tuned to that context. So when you use Bing Chat, you're getting a search experience and therefore factuality is really important. We even introduced a conversation style that allows you to choose a more precise uh, answer to really emphasize quite how important that is there. So I think trying to make sure that, you know, we are grounded in what we are doing, how we are doing it, how we are meeting expectations of users, which have been shaped over the years by our past use of technology. This is the direction forward here. And I think it's where certainly Microsoft and, and many other of our industry peers are sort of putting a lot of attention and focus right now. Well, we're almost out of time, but since this is a podcast about democracy and the uh efforts to restore political consensus, I, I have to ask you something about the role of government policy in shaping the future of this technology. As I'm sure you're aware, every other opinion article about this has some boilerplate at the end of it that says we need the government involved in making sure that this fill in the blank doesn't get out of hand, promotes the public interest, you name it. How is Microsoft, how are you thinking about the current environment in Washington in terms of policymaking and legislation around this? Do you consider it a basically benign and permissive environment at this point? Do you feel there are items on the agenda that maybe general public isn't really aware of that uh, are actually quite significant you'd like to tell us about? Give us a sense of where government policy is with respect to this technology right now? There's no question in my mind that we do need new laws and norms and standards here, as you mentioned. And Brad Smith, who's Microsoft's vice chair and president, has really put it pretty plainly that these issues are too important to be left to technologists alone. And equally, there is no way to anticipate or much less address these issues without involving tech companies. What I see in the US is that there's actually been a number of agency-led efforts uh, to create those norms in this space. So I'd highlight in particular the work that NIST has been driving to create an AI risk management framework. And, and if you're a follower of uh, NIST's work at all, you know that uh, previously, especially if through the cybersecurity framework that NIST produced. They've been very influential in driving good practice among industry, even though that framework for the most part remains a, a voluntary one. It's somewhat become a, a sort of norm for organizations wishing to sell their technology to the, the public sector to comply with. And I think there's a there's an obvious connection between the work that NIST does and, and the power of the person, the ability for NIST AI risk management framework to in time become a procurement requirement for federal agencies and those uh, using federal funding. So I do think that's a very strong example of agency-led work that's been done here in the US. The states continue to be laboratories of democracy, and so we see various pieces of legislation coming through as well. For Microsoft's part, we do support um, regulation in this space. We think it needs to be focused on high-risk applications, 
We believe it needs to be outcomes focused. And that's because of the fact that, you know, this technology is moving fast. Societal expectations are changing. And so we'd like to see frameworks that are that are durable uh, into the future and that allow a, a company like Microsoft to harness the very best methods of identifying and measuring and mitigating risks, not just the ones that happen to be available at the time that uh, the legislative package is passed. Globally, I think there's there's action being taken as well. The EU right now is moving through a legislative package called the AI Act, and that will establish a pretty comprehensive uh, set of laws in the European Union. And I'm encouraged by the fact that the US government is pretty actively involved in discussions with uh, the Europeans about interoperable frameworks and setting the norms here, because that's exactly what's going to be needed to harness the beneficial uses of this technology. You know, I could talk all day about this. At least I would like to. You've been very generous with your time. I wanted to close with one question. I hope it's going to be a fruitful one, even though it may sound a little bit negative in its framing. As you've been discussing this around the country now, and meeting with people of all levels of sophistication and all levels of concern and curiosity about this, what to you has stood out as the the greatest misconception that you have had to correct about this technology? The greatest misconception is that we have no control over it. And the reality of the situation is that we absolutely do have that control and we can take very clear steps building on many years of building these types of systems to make sure that um, it is in fact operating in a way that's trustworthy and it does uphold our principles. We haven't come to this moment in AI, this transformative moment in AI without having worked on these issues for a long time. And it's not just at Microsoft, it's across the industry as well. So I think we sh- we need to harness everything that we have learned to date about building safe and reliable and beneficial systems and put that to work in the context of, of these new systems and together chart the future that, that we want um, to harness these technologies, make us all more productive, get rid of the drudgery in our day-to-day lives and, and help make progress on these big societal challenges that we unquestionably need technology to help us solve. Well, Natasha Crampton, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. I'm just going to add one final comment in response to what you just said. Because I think it is pertinent. We, it's often said, and I think it's true, that we're living in at least a moment of low trust generally in our society. And that's what's so probably remarkable and challenging about what you're doing is you're doing it in that context for reasons that are perhaps beyond your control. I don't know. The society in general is experiencing a time of low trust that plagues our politics, that plagues the economy that plagues a lot of things. And that is probably going to be the main obstacle or one of the main obstacles you are going to have to overcome uh, as you go forward is simply in a way independent of what you may do or want to do or try to do. The background level of trust in American society is not what it was according to the best data we have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Raising the intriguing counterfactual, what if you had brought this out earlier? 
but I do, I do feel that's kind of the milieu you're operating in. I think it's right that people have heightened expectations of us in this moment. Technology is becoming more and more a part of our lives and we should be held to those high expectations. So I think we move forward in a, in with optimism because we do believe in the power of this technology, but with a very clear-eyed sense of our responsibility too. Natasha Crampton, Chief Responsible AI Officer of Microsoft. This has been a fascinating conversation for which I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. 